Good day, everyone. This is Joanne Baudre-Laroc, and it is January 18th, 2024. I hope everyone is doing okay. Uh, it's cold here in Northern Ontario. We certainly have received our fair share of snow. It was sort of a green Christmas this year, and then uh, Mother Nature decided to remind us of where we live, <laughs> and uh, we received a lot of snow. But I'm warm and cozy in our home, and uh, so I thought during uh, this podcast, as uh, the title of my podcast is uh, Life, Musings, Reflections, and Stories, I thought I would read uh, one of my stories, and I'll I'll do a couple of podcasts uh, where I I read one of my stories that have been published in uh, various uh, places, one of them being High Grader Magazine, which was a a magazine that was distributed worldwide, but it originated from Timmins, Ontario, Northern Ontario. Uh, The editor and publisher was Syl Billell, and unfortunately he has passed on, and then uh, unfortunately as many magazines have slowly dissipated and are no longer circulating. But the magazine High Grader is still online, and uh, many of my stories were published in that magazine, and it was a a collection of short stories. So uh, today I'd like to read one of my stories called Pappy's Dance, and then I'll talk about my grandparents a little bit. And so I'm just going to dive right into the story, Pappy's Dance. I'm going to read it to you. So grab a cup of coffee or uh, tea and maybe some cookies or your toast or whatever. And I hopefully you'll enjoy this story. I, a little background first. <clears throat> when I was quite young, five, six years old, I uh, was living with my grandparents and this, the reason why is because where my father worked for Ontario Hydro, he worked in a little small bush community uh, called Matabichuan, which was on the Matabichuan River, which is near Haleberry, Ontario. And uh, where they were, it was uh, row housing. And it was row housing for the hydro workers that lived uh, operating that dam on the Matabichuan River, but there was no school. So uh, when I was close to six years old, I still hadn't attended any school. And so my parents, uh, it would regrettably, uh, had me leave uh, because I they wanted me to attend school. And back then, it, it wasn't homeschooling like it is nowadays. But for me, I didn't mind it at all because I went to live with my grandparents in a little lumber town called Goward, and it's called uh, North Tamagami now. But the little town of Goward, maybe there might have been 50 homes, but I don't quote me on that. And it's a little town, it was a little town north of Tamagami, Ontario, and there was a a small lumber mill there, and that's where my grandfather worked. 
and my grandparents also operated a small general store where there was a post office and uh, that's where I lived for about a year to attend a one-room schoolhouse in Goward and I loved it. I absolutely loved living with my grandparents. I missed my parents. I had three younger brothers at the time. There were two more that came later on. My parents had six children. But for me, it was great living with my grandparents, Raphael and Lena Lynn Millette, uh, because I, I just, I got lots of attention, which was great. I was a shy kid. But with my grandparents, it was just fun. Um, they doted on me. Uh, they thought everything I did was funny or cute. And so it was great. And I lived with them for that one year until my parents moved north, more north, which was to a small uh, a farming community called uh, Hunta, which is near Cochrane, Ontario. But Anyway, for the one year that I lived with my grandparents, I reflected on that time after uh, my grandmother passed away, and I wrote a story called Pappy's Dance because it was my grandfather who taught me how to waltz. And so I'm going to read that story to you now, and I hope you enjoy it. And then I will read to you some little anecdotes that I wrote about my, my grandparents Uh because I, I wrote the eulogy for my grandmother when she passed away. And uh, I also wrote my father's eulogy. So, um, yeah, so I'd like to share that with you. And the importance of um, extended family. Uh, grandparents play a huge role in raising children. And if you're lucky to have grandparents, that is wonderful. Enjoy them. Reach out to them call them, email them if they're on the computer. But I, even though when I was older, uh, I moved with my ex-husband, we moved to many locations in Ottawa. We moved there twice. I remember making it a point to always call my grandmother, my grandparents, every Friday. And it was such a beautiful call every time. And then for a brief while, I lived in North Bay with my ex-husband, and that's where my grandparents eventually moved to, was North Bay, Ontario. And I remember picking up my grandmother and taking her to yard sales, and she was always looking for the nicest ashtray she could buy. <clears throat> my grandfather, he was a man of few words, but he always had a little smile. And when we were really young, my brothers and I, when we went to visit them, uh, the biggest treat we received was that my grandfather would have uh, Wrigley's spearmint gum, which is the yellow wrapper uh, over the gum, sticks of gum. And at the time, we were four kids in the Baudray family, and we would be just climbing all over my grandfather. He was six feet tall, which was tall for a man back then, and uh, he would slowly pull out that gum from his shirt pocket. It wouldn't say a word. He would just smile, and there's like four of his grandkids climbing all over him, and then he'd take one stick of gum out of his <laughs> package of Wrigley Spearmint gum and then slowly open it 
and open the yellow wrapper and then slowly open the aluminum foil wrapper and we would be just waiting with bated breath like so excited because he was going to give us a piece of his gum and then he'd break off four pieces from his one stick of of Wrigley spearmint gum and he gave us each a piece of his gum I'm being I was the only girl and the oldest and he'd give me mine first and it just tasted so good and I was so grateful that Pappy, we called him Pappy, would give us a piece of his gum. <laughs> and so I think we chewed the heck out of that gum. <laughs> but I mean, I have so many fond memories of my grandparents. But anyway, let's start off with me reading this story, Pappy's Dance. I hope I can get through it um, without either crying or laughing. But I wrote it in December of 1998. Uh, So here goes. Pappy's Dance by Joanne Baudry-Laroque, December 1998. The warmth in the kitchen felt good. I was sitting at our new gray chrome table practicing my letters. I was six years old and living with my nanny, Lynn Dupuy-Millette, and Pappy, Raphael, Slim Millette, in a tiny lumber village called Goward, three miles north of Tomogamy, Ontario, Canada. My parents were living in an Ontario hydro small community in the bush where there was no school. My father worked as an, as an operator at the Matabichuan River Electrical Power Generating Station out of North Cobalt near Haleberry, Ontario. Therefore, I lived with my grandparents for my first year of schooling and went to a one-room old wooden schoolhouse across the tracks in Goward. There was only one other girl in grade one along with me, and the grades went up to grade eight in our little school. We all sat together in one room with one teacher, and there was a wood stove to keep us warm in the winter. I remember how I enjoyed going to this little school. Now, it was December 24, 1962, and we had just come back from early Mass in Tomogamy with Father Moore as our priest at St. Elizabeth Catholic Church. I removed the Kleenex and bobby pins off the top of my head. I had forgot to wear my hat again to church. Therefore, Nanny, at the front door of the church, had hurriedly given me a Kleenex to wear, to cover my head instead. Sometimes we would use a cloth handkerchief if we didn't have a hat. This was the tradition back then. It was almost Christmas, but it wasn't too cold outside, with just a bit of white crispy snow on the frozen ground. Our home was kept warm by the shiny green and ivory-colored wood stove that dominated the kitchen with its shiny silver stovepipe and a pile of lumber beside it. I'm going down to the well to get some buckets of water to fill up our barrels before Sue and Richard and Nick and Jim come with the kids, announced Pappy as he hoisted the heavy gray, wooden gray yoke down from the veranda wall to be used around his neck to carry the big metal buckets. My grandfather was a tall, slim, good-looking man who was a quiet, kind person and who never spoke ill of anyone 
and did not like to hear gossip or criticism of a person either. He was a hard worker <clears throat> as foreman of the Tomogamy Timber Mill. His wages had started at $2 a day in 1936 for a 10-hour day piling pickets in the lumber yard. As they both worked with Pappy at the lumber mill and Nanny with her own store, they were doing well. They had felt they were blessed with good jobs and that they were rich. All right, Slim, but if you have time, could you try to add a few more blocks of ice from the lake to put into the, the ice house, inquired Nanny. This was a shed where there was a lot of sawdust to keep the blocks of ice cold. We might need some for the icebox inside too, expressed my grandmother with concern. The icebox was in the kitchen. Usually my grandmother or grandfather would chop a smaller chunk of ice, 25 pounds or 11.34 kilograms, off the 50-pound blocks of blue ice from the lake and clean off the sawdust and then slide the piece of ice into the top cabinet of the ice box to keep the food cold. As the ice slowly melted, the water would drip down both sides of the ice box into the bottom reservoir, which would have to be emptied twice a day, or else there would be a watery mess on the floor of the kitchen. This was always a daily concern to be kept up with. To, to keep the ice cream cold in the summer for my grandmother's store, which was out in the back veranda, ice would be packed around the tub of ice cream and then a layer of coarse salt, another layer of ice, and so on, with a double lid put on tight. She was supposed to make at least a dollar profit from each tub, which she rarely did, as she was always very generous with her scoops and curls. She always... Also, always gave a free pop and ice cream cone to any of the kids in the village which had made their first communion. This was her treat. My grandmother is a very elegant woman, very sociable, dresses in the latest styles, was the first Catholic Women League president in Tamagmi and an entrepreneur by opening her first store in Goward, selling pop and ice cream from her veranda. She always took some time to sit down and listen to our stories or woes and never criticized, but offered gentle advice if we asked for some. She is a great listener, which is such a wonderful quality, which I'm sure helped to make her little store so popular. Ruff, ruff, barked Pitu, who was their little black spaniel with his tail wagging, circling around and around my grandfather's legs. He wanted to follow Pappy down to the well, as he always wanted to shadow my grandfather's every move. Okay, come on, boy, as Pappy adjusted his suspenders on his dark coveralls with the oil stains. He threw on his warm green co coat and gray cap and lumbered out the veranda door. Clang, bang was the familiar sound as the door shut with the wire spring attached to it. I could hear Uncle Tom's hound dogs, Charlie, Bessie, Major, and Kruger at the back shed start barking as they wanted to go for their walk too. Even Wimpy, my grandfather's other dog, started making a fuss. The noise of all the activity always made me smile. I'll have the bacon and eggs waiting for you when you get back, shouted Nanny. 
Then, as she lifted out the heavy black cast-iron frying pan from the white cupboard and set it on the wood stove and tied her apron around her rose-colored dress, she patted me on the shoulders. Well, Joe, what will it be? One or two eggs? Giggling, looking back towards my grandmother, I told her, Nanny, I couldn't eat two eggs, but I would like to help you set the table. And so quickly I put away my pencils, eraser, and collection of papers into my bedroom. We were always taught it was good manners and to be considerate to help with the chores in the kitchen. Nanny was throwing a few more pieces of kindling and slab wood into the stove, and now the butter was melting in the pan. I could hear the logs crackling in the fire, with a few sparks coming up through the stove plates. It was a lively stove, I thought, with all different kinds of noises, lights, and wonderful smells of food cooking. The wooden crate beside the stove was stacked full of neatly arranged and evenly cut pieces of wood. Pappy was always worried that there wasn't enough wood, so the crate was never empty, that's for sure. I felt warm, loved, and happy as I also knew that soon my parents, Sue and Richard Beaudray, and my brothers Mark, Raymond, and David, I have five younger brothers, but Robert and Patrick weren't born yet, were coming for Christmas. We were all excited as we were waiting with anticipation for them to pile into my grandparents' house with a flurry of hellos, kisses, presents, and lots of noise. The handmade stockings with all our names were tacked on to the back door. The pine tree was up and decorated with homemade decorations and some new type of silver tinsel, which was strung around the tree, too. The old piano was dusted and shiny with decorated candles on top. Beside the Christmas tree was a gramophone, which is an old record player with the name Rogers Majestic, eloquently carved onto the dark wooden cabinet which encased the musical instrument. The record player, which had seen a lot of use, stood quiet. My grandparents loved music. Nanny loved to dance at any time, and then Pappy would sometimes do the two-step. This would only be after quite a bit of coaxing and if someone was playing the fiddle. It would be quite a sight, this big, tall man with a shy smile, all of a sudden stand up and do this thundering step dance, which would only last for a few minutes, and then just as fast, sit down again, cross his legs, smile, and just watch everyone else enjoy themselves at their many weekend parties with family and friends. As I set the table, adding our favorite treat of caramel spread, Nanny had finished cooking the bacon and toast, filling the air with the wonderful smells of a Sunday morning breakfast. Pappy came in with his great big heavy buckets of water. He slowly took a bucket off each end of the yoke and set it down on the wooden veranda floor near the the old white ringer washing machine. As he started to slowly pour the water into one of the big wooden barrels, he hollered out, I'll have four eggs, Lynn. We were all hungry now, but all in a cheerful mood too. Breakfast was served, and we soon filled up with the delicious food with Pappy's usual comment. 
Oh, geez, that was good, as he patted his stomach with a big smile on his face. Even Patu was full, with handouts from the table with bits of bacon and pieces of toast as his favorite treat. He stretched lazily with his black curly fur paws and was lying out on the kitchen floor in front of the warm stove. Pappy also loved to cook hearty big meals, and we always ate well. My grandparents were also known for feeding strangers, which was commonly called tramps back then, but not in an unkind way. These men would travel the freight trains, especially during the Depression, looking for work across the country, and word had spread that the Mallets and Goward would give you a good sandwich if you just knocked on their door. Total strangers, the ones that rode the trains, would come to my grandparents' side door and would ask, Could you give us something to eat? As they were all so hungry, Nanny would say, Yes, you wait at the door. And then they would stand outside and wait, and she would go into the kitchen and make them a lunch, mostly bologna sandwiches or anything else she happened to have for meat that would be filling. She couldn't see them go hungry. You would feel sorry for those people. Sometimes it would be one person or several people at a time that would come to their door, and this happened for many years. As it was Christmas Eve day, all the big chores had been taken off, taken care of, of on the day earlier. Nanny and I were gathering up the dishes to be washed. Maybe we could play cards after we're done the dishes, Nanny, I asked. We love to play fish or match the cards or solitaire to pass the time. Oh, I'd love that, exclaimed my grandmother, who is an avid card player, as bridge is her specialty. My other cousin, Cindy Booth, Michael and Sherry weren't born yet, was coming on Christmas Day, and she is the daughter of my Aunt Nikki Booth. Manette Millette, my grandparents' second daughter, and her husband, Uncle Jim Booth, and we all played cards with my grandmother. She always had the patience to teach us how to play a fun game of cards with sometimes a wager of a toothpick or a penny. But she didn't like to lose, always saying, Oh, I should have played that card. Continuing the kitchen chores, Nanny and I scooped out some warm water with great care from the reservoir, which was attached to the wood stove, to add to the large granite sink to watch the, wash the dishes. All of a sudden, both Nanny and I turned our heads towards the living room. We couldn't believe our ears. Usually it was Nanny who tackled the old record player, but this time, Pappy had put on the song, Roll Out the Barrel as he was standing up and doing a step dance and singing along with the music. The words that he didn't know were either hummed or sung with a la-la-la-la. Oh, Slim, what are you up to? Nanny exclaimed. Oh, nothing, as he smiled mischievously. Pappy, I asked, as I hopped and skipped into the living room. Are you going to dance? Oh, I don't know, he said. He reached down into the wooden crate to retrieve another record and put it onto the player. I don't know what's gotten into you. Must be the Christmas spirit, stared my grandmother with a perplexed look on her face towards her husband. Another lively song filled the air. Sing in in the rain, la-di-da-di-da. Wow, this is fun, I thought.
as they looked at my grandparents who were enjoying and singing along with the music. Oh my, I better check the baked beans as Nanny turned around to run into the kitchen. I was humming along with the songs too as I didn't know the words, especially to another familiar song of which I would often hear when our relatives would get together. Cole soleil, dit bonjour, en matin, et que la nuit recontère les jours, je suis seul avec mes réveils sur le matin, une voix m'arrêpelle toujours, écoute à ma porte la chanson du veille qui me rappelle un souvenir de toi. When the sun says hello to the mountains and the night says hello to the dawn, I'm alone with my dreams on the hilltop. I can still hear your voice, though you're gone. I hear from my door the song of the wind that brings me back sweet memories of you. Quand le soleil dit bonjour, their favorite song of Calisole de Beaujour Amantang was just finishing the last chords. When Pappy looked at me and said, Come on, Joe, I'm going to teach you how to waltz. At six years old, I wasn't sure what he meant, but to go along with all the fun and festive mood, I sure was willing to try. Nanny came back into the living room with their apple blossom cologne, red lipstick, mirror, and holding her cup of tea and sat down into her rocking chair to watch us. Okay, now, hold my hand like this and your other hand like this. Smiling in anticipation, I put my small hands into my grandfather's big hands and looked way up to my giant pappy. Lynn, can you put a waltz on? shouted out pappy. Nanny jumped out of her rocking chair, knocking over her knitting basket. As colorful balls of wool spilled out onto the floor, she quickly picked them up with us helping her, laughing wholeheartedly. She then found another favorite song of theirs from the record box. As the ballad of Tennessee waltz permeated the room, I heard, now, one step, sideways, to the right. Bend your knees and come up and step back to the middle and then take a step to the left. Bend your knees and walk back to the middle and then take a step forward and then take a step backwards and then turn around to another spot on the floor and repeat the steps. Well, you can imagine how confusing this was to a six-year-old little girl. I was tripping all over his feet, and I heard, Well, let's try it again. So again we tried. I fell on the wooden floor as I tripped over my own feet this time. Nanny was laughing so hard, she was holding her stomach. I don't think I can do a waltz, I pouted. Sitting there glumly on the floor, I felt miserable. Oh, come on, Joanne, it's not that bad. As Pappy reached down and gently lifted me up into the air, let's try it again before your folks arrive. By this time, my grandmother 
had got up to run back into the kitchen as she realized her bread pudding wasn't prepared yet for tonight's dinner. This time, remarked Pappy, put your shoes on top of my shoes and it will be easier for you to follow me. Worried that I would not be able to do the waltz, I thought this was a funny way to learn how to do this dance, but I was willing to try it again. So with much apprehension, I slowly put my feet with my small black shoes on, on top of each of my grandfather's large black shiny shoes. He reached over and put the, sh- the slow ballad back onto the beginning of the record. I was waltzing with my darling to the Tennessee waltz when an old friend I happened to see introduced him to my loved one and while they were waltzing my friend stole my sweetheart from me. I remember the night and the Tennessee waltz. Now I know just how much I have lost. Yes, I lost my little darling the night they were playing the beautiful Tennessee waltz. I was scared, thinking to myself that I didn't feel I could do this dance. I looked out the window and noticed the beautiful white snowflakes gently floating outside. Even they seemed to be dancing and waltzing in slow circles, falling gently to the ground and covering the earth in a clean white blanket to keep it it warm. I'm going to try again, I thought, not wanting to disappoint my grandfather as he seemed to think I could dance the waltz. One step to the side, bring your other foot too, and now back to the middle, and now to the other side, said Pappy with a softness to his voice. I was trying not to let my shoes slip off his shoes and follow at the same time. And then to my regret, my left shoe slipped off. Oh no, Pappy, I can't do it, I exclaimed. Oh yes, you can. You just have to try and try again, he said, with a lot of patience and kindness. Nanny came into the living room with a potato in one hand and a small paring knife in the other hand and looked at me with sympathy. Come on, Joe, you can do it. Just pretend you are a princess. Well, that did it, because in my creative and theatrical mind, a princess is a beautiful, graceful, magical person. And I thought, yes, I am a princess. And I imagined myself with a long flowing gown and a gold crown with jewels on my head, just like Cinderella, and Pappy was Prince Charming. To a little girl, this gave me the picture that I needed to try again. The song started again. Pappy reminded Nanny, Oh, Lynn, don't forget the carrots, meaning carrots, his favorite vegetable. He called them carrots. Looking down at me, hands in each other's hands, Pappy started to lead following the slow beat beats of the song. With my shoes on his shoes and imagining I was a beautiful princess, we waltzed and waltzed slowly turning around and around the small living room, 
dancing and laughing, and I felt wonderful. Wow, Christmas is such a beautiful time of the year. Later on in the afternoon, my family and my other relatives came in with a lot of hugs and kisses, presents and hoopla. There was, a, there was lots of food to eat and cheer to go around. My brothers and I, with our usual tradition of pestering my grandfather for a piece of spearmint Wrigley's gum, which always happened whenever we got together, Pappy would take out one stick at a time and break it up into a piece for each one of us. One stick of gum would end up being four little pieces. We were thrilled. We always knew where he kept his gum, which was in his shirt pocket. Of course, he would try to pretend he didn't have any, but we always knew he did. It was Christmas Eve night now. Everyone was in their beds, sleeping, breathing softly. Santa was sure to come any minute. I quietly got out of my bed and walked to the kitchen and had a sip of water. On the way back to my room, I noticed my grandfather, who was over six feet tall, down on his knees against his bed with his head bowed into his hands. I knew he was saying his prayers as he did every night. That sight of such a big man who would humble himself to give thanks and pray to our Heavenly Father made me feel in awe. As a young girl, I realized at that moment, now no matter how big or small you are, or if you think you have failed or won, that the message I receive on seeing my pappy praying on his knees with reverence to our God was important. I felt in my own mind this meant that a person or child, whatever position in life you are in, should remember to try and try again until you are until you succeed and with great faith in our Lord to always say your prayers anyways. As I snuggled down into my warm and soft blankets, I thought to myself, even Prince Charming prays. I fell asleep and I dreamt of dancing and waltzing through the fluffy clouds into the starry, twinkling night. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Dedicated to my grandparents, Nanny and Pappy, Lena Lynn, and Raphael Slim Millette, I love you, your godchild and granddaughter, Joanne. So that's the end of that story, Pappy's Dance. And uh, I just wanted to read a few other little anecdotes and little other tidbits of uh, of memories uh, for, for all of you. Uh, and getting back to having grandparents, if you don't have grandparents or if your children don't have grandparents, there are many seniors out there who you could kind of adopt as your grandparents, lonely seniors or elderly people that are living alone or in long-term care facilities that you could start visiting and they could kind of become your chosen grandparents or chosen grandparents for your own children. So uh, I remember my father one time, before he died, he was in foster care and the orphanage and then foster care. And before he died during his last birthday, 
he was 74, he said, you know, when he was a young child, bounced around in foster care and foster homes, he always thought to himself, I wonder what it would be like to have grandparents. He had grandparents, um, one set of grandparents that were living in in Verner, while the grandfather had moved to Toronto, and then another grandfather who lived in Armprior. But, you know, being in foster care, he was taken away from all of that, unfortunately. So if you don't have grandparents or other people in your life for your kids, let's say, uh, reach out, find find someone or pray for someone to be in your life, but you won't find them sitting at home. It's important to volunteer um, and go to these, let's say, long-term care facilities or find out uh, who your neighbors might be. Are they, uh, is, are they an elderly person living by themselves? Maybe bring them some cookies sometime. Uh, but it's it's up to you, but I'm just for me, having grandparents uh were were important for me as they I cherish the memories. Uh I didn't get to know my father's mother or father until much later on in life when he reconnected with his birth parents and um my grandmother Lila uh, she didn't say much, but I remember her lovingly touching my hair and just remarking at, towards me just that she just seemed in awe that she had a granddaughter. And she had other granddaughters too, but it, it just, I remember sitting with her in her kitchen uh, in my 30s, I'd say, and her just looking at me. So, uh, yeah, it's it's important to, to reach out. One of the things that uh, my grandmother reminded me of a story before she passed away was when I was living with my grandparents at age six years old. I called her Nanny. Uh, she woke up, my grandmother, Nanny, Lynn Dupuis Millette, woke up during the middle of the night at two in the morning she could see the lights were on in the kitchen as she got up and saw that I was sitting at the kitchen table. And Nanny asked me, what was I doing? And I replied, writing. And I was six years old. I could barely write, but I was still writing. I replied with an earnest look on my face. Oh, replied Nanny. And so Nanny sat with me and watched for about five minutes and then asked, well, are you done writing? Do you want to go to bed now? I answered, okay. So I packed up all my stuff, paper, pencils, an eraser, and went to bed. So I guess my writing career started early when I was just a young girl. It was nice to know that I had the support from my grandmother as she realized what I was doing was important to me. She didn't say get to bed or whatever. She just sat with me and watched me write and then asked if I wanted to go to bed now. This was two in the morning in this small little lumber type house, log house kind of thing. And uh, yeah, she it, the importance of uh, grandparents. 
my grandfather, I remember him collecting everything, uh, living through the Depression, as they both did. Everything was important if they could collect it and keep it and save it. So my grandfather would have this big ball of elastics he would find, or pencils, or buttons, or nails. And if they were crooked nails, he'd take the time and straighten them up so that he could use them possibly down the line. So uh, he was quite the saver, and uh, they were good with their money. They saved their money, they worked hard, uh, but they treated themselves too, but within reason. So, uh, yeah, they'd buy a case of beer once in a while. My grandmother smoked, uh, but they always still had enough money to help others uh, and always had food in their, their ice box. And so I learned a lot from my grandparents, but one thing I learned from them for me was how much they loved me. They really loved me. And I always will remember that feeling of warmth and love. And and uh, sometimes you might not get that from your own parents or your siblings. But, you know, it's nice that I, I felt blessed that I had that much love from my grandparents. I know my parents love me, but being loved by your grandparents is kind of a different kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, if you can, if you have that in your life, that's wonderful. If not, look for elderly people that might want to share their love with you. So I'm going to read to you a few other um, notes that I have. One of the uh, amusing, and there were many anecdotes that we often heard uh, from my grandmother, was this. If I can't fall asleep at night, then all I have to do is list or rhyme off in my mind the names of all of our Canadian prime ministers from the beginning. And if I'm still not asleep, then I start to remember from 1867 all of the governor generals of Canada, and usually by then <clears throat> I am asleep. This was always said with a lot of laughter because we talked about insomnia. And if she couldn't sleep, she'd start naming off the Canadian prime ministers and then the governor generals of Canada from 1867. And then she said, and if that wasn't enough, my grandmother would also think of all of her grandchildren and great-grandchildren and run through to remember all of their birth dates. And if that didn't work, then she would name off all of her nieces and nephews and all the names of their children, then name off all the provinces and the capital cities in Canada, then list all of the 50 states in the United States, and then finally, she said she'd start with all of the alphabet and try to think of as many words that she could think of. No wonder why she couldn't sleep. That just made us laugh so much every time she'd talk about what she would do if she couldn't sleep. <laughs> she had an active mind, and she was in tune with what was going on around her and in the world. She constantly worked on her crossword puzzles or do the daily search a word from the newspaper, the North Bay Nugget, 
or books. She loved her books. She would read nightly. That was her her uh, tranquilizer, I guess you could say. If and if she'd read, and then she if she couldn't sleep, then she'd do the other stuff that I just mentioned. She loved cards, and uh, she loved playing solitaire, where she would play daily by herself. If you dropped into her place, you'd see on her pink couch that I have here now in my house, uh, she'd have all the cards laid out because she was playing solitaire by herself, and this would keep her mind sharp. And she would even practice her bridge, bidding by herself, and... uh, and then on Mondays, every Monday, she'd leave her house, take the bus, and go to play bridge with other bridge players. She was ninety in her ninety. Um, I believe she was ninety first year. I'm trying to think, or ninety third year. But at ninety years old, she still lived in her own house in North Bay, <clears throat> and she was so proud of her of her little house worth the beautiful gardens because she said people would drive by her house and look at her brightly colored flowers in her many many gardens. And her two daughters and her two son-in-laws would help her with that. So, uh, yeah, I just have so many great memories of my grandmother and grandfather. And now to end this podcast, I'm going to um, read my eulogy that I, I read and wrote for my grandmother. Uh, but getting back, going to back to my grandfather, Pappy, uh, when I was living in Ottawa the first time <clears throat> with Dan, my ex-husband, we were going for a walk, and we lived in Vanier, which is kind of inside the city of Ottawa, and we were walking by Beechwood Cemetery, and as we were walking along, this black dog came bounding out of the 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 bushes with its owner but it unfortunately in front of us we saw the dog get hit by a car and it was so upsetting and we went over to the dog right away and we could see uh, it was hit in the head and blood was coming out of its mouth and I was crying I, I and Dan was also comforting the dog and then I felt like I was going to pass out so I went to sit down on the it was kind of like a a bit of snow still on the ground and uh, I sat on the ground and then the poor owner was so distraught and another kindly person drove up with his car and he offered to take the dog to the vet and it was just a, a surreal unfortunate moment but the dog reminded me of Patu which was my parent, my grandparents, little cocker spaniel, little black dog named Patu, and it was weird because that's what I thought of was Patu. So then Dan and I went back to our apartment, and as we were coming up the stairs, I could hear my phone, our phone ringing, and I went to answer it, and then it was my, my either my mom or my dad saying that Pappy died, and I was so upset because Pappy. <laughs> I love my grandparents so much. And it was so weird because we just saw this little black, this dog get hit and killed, and I thought of Patu. And then I'm coming up to the apartment, and the phone's ringing, and I found out my grandfather died. So we left 
Ottawa that same day, I believe it was in April, and we uh, drove to North Bay. <sighs> but that was, uh, yeah, let's talk about uh, circumstances or events that happen. And so then when my grandmother died, uh, my grandfather was born in 1904. My grandmother was born in 1908, and she died in January in 1999. She was in her 91st year. The wake was held at the McGinty Funeral Home in North Bay. And I was asked to do the to write a eulogy for her. There was about 119 people that attended that funeral, and uh, most of my family is resting at the Calendar Cemetery in in Calendar, Ontario. That's where my grandparents, my great grandparents, uh, my parents are resting. So. The day of the wake, which was for my grandmother, January 13th, 1999, I was still very distraught, grieving, nannies passing away. And as I had previously been asked to do a eulogy for my grandmother, I was afraid I couldn't do it, as the words didn't want to come out. While she was nearing her end at the hospital, I felt there wasn't much time to compose the eulogy and to do a good job. Every time I sat down at my computer to type, my fingers felt very cold, and I just couldn't type. As I was ready, getting ready to go from Sudbury to North Bay, I heard the words in my mind, You can do it, Joe. I knew it was Nanny's voice in my mind, reassuring me that she had the confidence in me to do her eulogy. At that moment, I then felt I could do it, and the words would come to me. I felt my grandmother, Nanny, deserved to have a good eulogy done for her. With her spiritual help, I knew I would be able to do the best writing I could do now under the circumstances. The next day, on the morning of her funeral and of her final goodbye to her, on January 14, 1999, I wrote the words on pieces of paper in my hotel room in North Bay. And on the day... Of her funeral, I did have the emotional strength to be able to read my eulogy and to talk about the celebrations of her life to the family and friends that were gathered there to remember Lena Lynn Dupuy Millette. This is my eulogy, and this will be near the end of this episode. Eulogy, read and spoken by Joanne Beaudry. The Rock, January 1999. My grandmother was born July 13, 1908, 90 years ago. Her name is Lena Millette, but she was commonly called Lynn, or also called Nanny, by her nine grandchildren and 15 great-grandchildren. In my eulogy for my grandmother, I will be referring to her as Nanny, her husband, Raphael Millette, he was born in 1904. My grandfather was commonly called Slim or called Pappy by his grandchildren. Nanny's parents were Eugenie and Felix Dupuy from Corbeil, Ontario, and she married Raphael Millette in 1931. They were married for 48 years. Together they had four children, Claudette, 
a baby girl who died at birth. Then they had Suzanne, my mother, commonly called Sue, who married my father, Richard Beaudray. Then a baby boy was born. The baby's boy's name was David, but he passed away after only 21 days. And then they had another girl named Monique, commonly called Nikki, and she married James Booth. The notice in the newspaper gives a brief account of Nanny's history, which is where she worked and that she was a CWL member of the church where she attended, that she was an avid card player, and she also belonged to the neighborhood knitting club. But I want us to remember and to pass on to our children how valuable and special and who Nanny was to us and to so many other people at all ages that had also known her. I was fortunate to record Nanny on tape to recount her biography in 1997. This was transcribed to print for her 90th birthday party in July 1998. As a loving tribute to both of my grandparents, I wrote a Christmas story in December 1998 of this past year entitled Pappy's Dance. This story chronicled a time in 1962 when I was six years old. There was no school where my parents resided, so I went to live with my nanny and Pappy to go to school for one year. Pappy taught me how to waltz at that time, and I feel the story relates to how both warm and loving and full of life my grandparents were. Nanny loved my true story, and I knew it meant a lot to her as tears filled her eyes. Her eyesight was poor at the time, so I had to read, read it to her, and I was so glad to have written it in time for her to hear it before it was too late. Nanny was afraid of her time and not afraid of challenges. In the 1930s, she opened her own store in Goward to sell pop and ice cream. She would also give treats to all the children in the village who had made their first communion. As being her grandchildren, we will all remember, as soon as we would hear Nanny say, I'm going to treat you, or if you received a birthday card with the words in it saying, have a treat on me, what that would signify to us. It was not the coins that matter, but knowing how she was just so pleased and anxious to do this for us, to treat us, to share. To also feed the poor and hungry, as this is what Nanny and Pappy had done during the Depression. They fed the people who rode the trains, looking for work across the country. Strangers would come to their door looking for something to eat, knowing they could get a good sandwich from the Millettes. As Nanny had told me in her biography, with tears in her eyes, she just couldn't see them go hungry. Nanny always had a sense of style of her own. She always dressed with utmost care to look her very best. We were always proud of how our Nanny looked and to say she was our grandmother. She never showed her age as her appearance was important to her to wear makeup, fashionable clothes, hats, fancy earrings, sunglasses and perfume. I was able to take Nanny out for lunch in Sudbury at Pat and Mario's restaurant on Tuesday, December 15, 1998. This was before she went by ambulance into the hospital on December 22, 1998. Initially, our plans were to go out while my parents were to attend an Ontario Hydro Christmas luncheon. 
but Nanny felt very sick early that morning, and my mother wasn't sure that Nanny could even make it to my home, let alone go out to a restaurant. So we felt it was a better idea if I was to go over to my parents' house to take care of her there. Nanny's vision was was poor, and her stomach was extremely sore, causing her a lot of pain. But later on in the morning, she felt she was okay, and the plans changed again. So now, the new plans were that she was to be brought over to my house by my parents to spend some quiet time. My parents' car wasn't even out of the driveway, and as soon as we were alone, Nanny announced to me, Well, Joe, let's go out. I was shocked, but not really surprised. She was always full of spirit and had known and was known to have a suitcase half packed at her home, and she was always ready to go. We had a beautiful lunch together. Nanny played cards with all of us with a competitiveness that which would make us laugh. We all had so much fun playing many card games with her. At other times to comfort us, for whatever reason, she always patted our shoulders or hands to reassure us and would say, Oh, it's okay, or it could be worse, or tomorrow is another day. She always made every one of us feel loved, wanted, valuable, and special, and that is why Nanny is so special to us. At 90 years young, she was full of life, loved life, and loved the people around her life. She always said there was always some good in everyone. Nanny had once said to her great-granddaughter, Jennifer Booth, why waste your time not liking someone when you could use the energy to like someone? Nanny was a great listener to all of our stories or woes, never judging or criticizing us, but instead helped us to turn things around so we could feel better about a situation we might be in. Whenever Nanny came over to my house, I would play the piano for her, some of her favorite songs like All Sang and so on. She loved so many songs and loved to sing along or even just to listen to the music being played at her family gatherings, especially her birthday parties. For three weeks, she was in the hospital from December 22, 1998 to January 11, 1999 until she passed. We didn't want her to be alone and we knew she didn't want to be alone. During this time, our last visits with her, she would say so many special comments to us, but one comment she would keep on saying was, I don't want to be a burden. Through the Christmas holidays and New Year's season, most of us were able to spend time to care for her 24 hours a day. We all took shifts to go into the hospital to talk and visit with her, to wipe her brow, to give her water on a sponge, to pat her shoulder, and to hold her hand. Sometimes Nanny would cry with a tear rolling down her cheek. We would cry too. One time she asked me to read to her again my story, Pappy's Dance, and I did. Another time she just said, sing to me, and I did. I cried and she would sing, what's wrong, Joe? And she would say, what's wrong, Joe? 
The weather was not pleasant, and it was bitterly cold. After hours of being in the hospital, it would be a cold walk back to our frozen cars. We felt helpless for Nanny, and everyone was tired. One morning, I was hurriedly making the beds at home and getting ready to go to the hospital for my early morning shift, and I was not looking forward to starting my cold car and driving on the snowy, slushed-filled roads. As I was making my daughter's bed, I folded the pink afghan that Nanny had made as a gift for her for a Christmas present this December 1998. I took a good look at that afghan. I looked at every little knitted square, every little knitted tassel, and at all the bright and cheerful colors of this special afghan and really realized how hard she had worked for us. In the past year, she knitted 18 afghans. The 18 afghans were done, she had said to me, so all of her great-grandchildren would have something to remember her by. This was just like Nanny, giving something of herself to all of us, to take care of us, to keep our children warm. In the past, she would crochet and had knitted brightly colored slippers, baby blankets, colorful work socks, sweaters, toques, mittens, tablecloths, afghans, bedspreads, and so on. Nanny wasn't able to open her gifts this past Christmas. She was just too sick. And after she had passed away, the, the gifts were given back to the persons who originally sent them to her. After our prayers the other night, my husband and I and my two daughters were sad. But then Jessica said to me, It's okay, Mommy. I can see Nanny. She's happy. She's dancing with Pappy in the clouds. Hearing this made us feel good inside and a little less lonely. Thank you, Nanny, from all of us. We were very fortunate to have had you and Pappy in our lives. We will miss you. We will miss your smile and your loving presence, but we know you are happy now in spirit. We love you, Nanny, your granddaughter, and godchild, Joe. And that was the end of my eulogy. There's one more comment I'd like to, to make before I end this episode. Nanny's parents, Felix and Eugenie Dupuis, took in foster children in the 1940s, one of them being my father, Richard Beaudray. This is how he met my mother, Suzanne Millette, who was their granddaughter. My father was very close to Felix and Eugenie. He actually called them mom and dad, even though they were his foster parents. Near the end of his life, Nanny's father, Felix, had stomach cancer, which incidentally was the same Ill illness that my grandmother had. My father spent a lot of time with Felix in the hospital until Felix passed away in 1951. Like all of us in the immediate family, my father, Richard, also went to the hospital to spend time and take care of Nanny, to be with her during her final time as he did with Nanny's father. It is by ironic coincidence that Felix died on January 11, 1951, and the funeral was on January 14, 1951. And then Nanny, his daughter, my grandmother, died also 
on January 11, 1999, and her funeral was on January 14, 1999. Ironically also, January 14th is my dad's birthday. Thank you to all of you, to all my listeners, uh, for listening to my story, Pappy's Dance. Thank you for just being my listeners. And cherish the ones that you love. Reach out, call them, email them, because we're only here for a short time. And our special ones in our lives might only be here for a short time. Take care. All the best. Joanne.